I, uh, I'll talk about this in a minute. I've been gone for the last uh, 10 days on, on a mission trip in, in Europe, so I, uh, I, I didn't have anything to do with planning this service. So everything that Rustin and Eric said I had nothing to do with, and uh, I had nothing to do with Troy's shirt either. So I, uh, But I did get a, I got a new shirt for this too, and I was looking at that up on the screen going, I look like I should be in prison or something like that. But <laughs> it looked really nice in the store, so... When uh, we first were planning this service, I was supposed to be gone. The group that I was with from our church doing a, a mission trip in Eastern Europe for 10 days is just getting back tonight. But when we decided that we were going to kick off Saturday night tonight, June 1st, I, I rearranged all my plans. I said I would not miss that so that I could be back with you all here. So I landed about 48 hours ago. And if any of you have ever traveled across multiple time zones, for about a week and a half, you know that 48 hours is not quite enough time to recoup. So I was laying down about three o'clock this afternoon, almost falling asleep. And I mean, I was just, I'm so exhausted. And I've just been praying that over the next 35 minutes, I would not yawn in the middle of my own sermon. So (laughs) that would be really bad. So you guys got to pray for me there. But I I am so excited about uh, tonight. Uh, This is really a huge day, huge day in the life of our church. Uh, There's been a lot of work that's gone in to preparation for this new Saturday night service. Uh, Not just Troy and his team and myself, but children's ministry, teen ministry, security, ushers, greeters, men's ministry, uh, all of our staff are fully in and fully involved in this. And so we're not taking this lightly at all. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this tonight, but, but more than anything else, what I need you to know is that this is not just an alternate time for believers to worship, uh, though it is that. You know, we started Saturday night service because we thought it would be really good for the people of Scottsdale Bible Church to come and have an alternate time on Saturday night to worship uh, and, and not just Sunday or Sunday night as we used to have. But this is also as an outreach to our community. And I need all of you to join me in that. In fact, I'm glad that it's not full here tonight. But we definitely have enough of a critical mass to have a service. Thank you for coming here. But before you go tonight, I want you to look around. And I want you to look at the empty pew seats next to you because they are there. And I want you to know that those are for the people in our community who have yet to find Jesus who have yet to find the hope that the gospel gives us. They're living self-satisfied, semi-lost, if not completely lost, lives. And our church exists to reach out to lost ones who have yet to find their hope in Christ. And so a huge part of starting a Saturday night service is not just for believers, but also for those in our community so we can introduce them to the life-changing message and relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. So with that said, why don't you bow with me and let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in, and then we're going to go to the communion table here in a few minutes. Father God, we thank you for your grace and for your goodness that you've showered on us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells those of us who believe and that you've given us power and love and presence in order to live life. And Father, I pray that as we rally together tonight as the church, as we band together here in this inaugural Saturday night service, that you might be pleased with our worship, 
uh, with the devotion of our lives, with our faith focused upon you and rightly focused on Jesus. And Lord, now help us to turn our sights uh, to those in our community who have yet to know you, uh, to those, Lord, who might look at our lives as Troy just sang about. And let's ask the tough question, do they see Jesus? And as we walk across the room to relate to them, to love them in your name, Lord, would you help us get a vision for what that might look like? So, Lord, speak to us tonight through the life of your son, Jesus, through his words and through your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the deal. I have never met a Christian yet that hasn't in some way wanted to be a good witness in their faith in Christ. Never met one yet. Jesus calls us to be salt and light. He tells us to not hide our lamp under a bowl. He refers to a city on a hill, and he calls us that city and, and tells us to shine. He, he says that they'll know that we are Christians by our love. And though I've met many, many Christians who have trouble doing all of that, and they, don't certainly, they certainly don't know how to do all that, I have yet to meet a Christ follower who in some way doesn't desire to be a contagious Christian. And so what I want to do this evening on this inaugural Saturday night service that as we've already established is not just another option for believers but also a platform to reach deeper into our community is that I want to talk about the amazing opportunity that you and I have every day to be contagious in our lives and in our faith to those around us. I want to talk about what it might look like for you and I to follow Jesus and being an influencer with those around us for the sake of the gospel. And so if you brought a Bible with you tonight, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35, and we're going to read through verse 38. If you didn't bring a Bible, the outline should be, or should the scripture should be on your outline. We'll always put it up here on the screen. And then also, there's a pew Bible in front of you as well, Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 35 to 38, and just follow along with me as I read this to you, and then we're going to talk about it. It says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, as I have taught you guys on a regular basis, when it comes to the Bible, before you can dive into any text, one of the things that you need to do is understand the context, to understand its place within the Bible or the book itself. And so obviously this account is in one of the four Gospels, which are the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And yet what is most fascinating is the place this scripture, or the place this account takes within the Gospel of Matthew itself. So let me give you the big picture here. If you were reading the Gospel of Matthew in one sitting, you would need to understand that Matthew chapters 1 through 9 are basically about Jesus' life and ministry. It obviously begins with his birth, and then his temptation, and his baptism, and then the famous Sermon on the Mount. It's all about Jesus and his life and ministry. 
But then you get to chapter 9, and specifically here, verse 35, and what we see happening here is, is Matthew telling us that Jesus is now at the height of his public ministry. He's going through all the cities and all the villages. He's teaching. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's healing. And then, interestingly, from Matthew chapter 10 until the end, the disciples are now sent out to serve and minister, learning to do what Jesus has been modeling for them in the first nine chapters of Matthew. And so don't miss that the whole point of this event in Matthew 9 here is to pass the authority on that Jesus displays in Matthew's cha Matthew chapters 1 through 9 to now pass it on to the disciples who are going to take the baton and start to run with it themselves in the power that Jesus gives them in chapters 10 and beyond. So what most commentators point out is that Matthew chapter 9 is a bridge passage bridging the first half of Matthew with the second half of Matthew. In a very real way, this is a bridge passage to get someone from being a casual follower of Jesus Christ to a committed disciple, uh, from being somebody who's just a learner and a listener of Jesus to now being a leader and influencer of others in the name of Jesus. This is how important this passage is before us. And so contained in this event and the very brief words of Jesus, I see three critical things that it teaches us here on how to become a contagious Christian, to how to be the kind of follower of Jesus Christ that attracts others to him, and even, as I said in my prayer, walks across the room and learns to engage them. And so first, notice with me that this passage talks about the motive of a contagious Christian, the motive of a contagious Christian, which obviously here is compassion, Compassion. Look again at verse 36 and you will see what I mean. As it describes Jesus, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Compassion for them. I want you to focus on that word compassion. In the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, this word compassion means pretty much what it means today. It means to feel sympathy for someone, to have pity on someone, to have compassion. And it carries with it a sense of actually having a gut reaction to those around you, spontaneous and in response to what one might perceive. It connotes an actual physical moving deep inside one's body. One's stomach and heart are so moved with tenderness that you actually feel something in you. We've all had that experience of compassion. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage in Matthew, refers to the opposite of these as slow bellies, as those who have no compassion, who never feel anything in their gut when it comes to the needs around them. But this is somebody who actually does feel something. It's any kind of gut reaction that produces a tenderness toward one that it is directed at. And so what it's telling us here in this context is that when Jesus saw the people, now don't miss this, each of them, all different kinds of people from all over the place, young and old, rich and poor, educated and not educated, nice and even not so nice, the text makes the point that he's going through all the cities and dealing with all kinds of people, and in just seeing the people of the world, it says that Jesus was moved and broken for them. Tenderness and compassion were the name of the game for Jesus. 
And so as Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher, would sum up, and I quote, he says, what he, Jesus, saw not only affected his eye, but his heart. His whole frame stirred with emotion and emotion which put every faculty into forceful movement. And so to put it in modern day context, if Jesus was here today and at this service tonight, he'd walk out of here tonight, go left on Shea, go down to Scottsdale Road, and he might go left down to Fashion Square and Tempe, or he might go right up to Kierland and Scottsdale Quarter, but no matter which way that he would go, when he would encounter all the people, he would be moved with compassion. From the shoppers to the business people, from those visiting the resorts to the locals, to the students at ASU, to the retirees. What this text is telling us is that when no matter what kind of human being Jesus confronted, he had the same response, the same motive. It was a motive of compassion. And so don't miss that the motive of a contagious Christian, of you and I following Jesus, is going to be nothing less. It's going to be compassion, compassion for those around us. And so before we move on to the second thing needed to be a contagious Christian, i got to ask you tonight, what is it that you feel at seeing the lost all around you? What gut reaction occurs in you when you deal with the people of this world? Is it numbness or compassion? Is it anger or compassion? Is it confusion or compassion? Is it judgment or compassion? Is it compassion or any other kind of response? Because I'm telling you, folks, only the motive of compassion that produces a tenderness will cause you to become an influencer in the hands of God. Nothing less will produce this. And all I know is what a great challenge this is to you and me living in the 21st century here in Scottsdale. If we want to be contagious Christians, we've got to ask ourselves, do we have compassion for those around us. You know, as I mentioned in my, uh, before I prayed, I, I just got back from a 10-day trip to Poland where we did a mission trip with a bunch of people from our church. But we were at the European Leadership Forum called ELF where we were helping put on a, a huge conference for about 700 Christian leaders from all across Western and Eastern Europe. And so there was about 40 different countries represented at this conference that we helped put on so that speakers like Wayne Grudem and Oz Guinness and, and nationally known speakers like that could minister to these 700 Christian leaders and help them in their cause in Western and Eastern Europe. And this year it was held in Poland, specifically just outside of Krakow. Now, if you know anything about Krakow, you know that Krakow is where Auschwitz concentration camp is, as well as Birkenau. And so on the day before I left, we took a tour of Auschwitz. I had never been there. And I got to tell you, I was moved for the Polish people by visiting Auschwitz. I'll show you some pictures up here on the screen. Give me a click here, guys. Here's some pictures of Auschwitz. You can see on the right there, on the upper right there, there's a guard shack, and that sign there says HALT. You can see on the upper left there, it's hard to see, but there's actually a sign there that, 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 enter, that greets you as you enter into Auschwitz that greeted all the prisoners that basically said in German, work makes you free. Work makes you free. They were trying to dupe them into that. 
And then you'll see on the bottom left there, that's a firing squad uh, wall where they executed a lot of people. And on the uh, middle there toward the right is a hangman's noose. And I got to tell you, when I was in Auschwitz and then when we crossed the road to Birkenau, uh, every Polish joke that I'd ever heard over the years faded into the background. Every joke that I would ever thought of about Polish people or anything like that that I heard growing up was no longer there. You can't walk through Auschwitz. You can't walk through Birkenau and see the place where one million plus Polish Jews were killed just 60, 70 years ago and not be moved with compassion. I can't imagine a heart that wouldn't be moved by visiting there. And then we were at the European Leadership Forum for a week where, again, we got to see people from 40 different European nations come together who have none of the resources that you and I have, many of them from formerly Eastern Bloc countries, and you see them come together with joy, worshiping God. In fact, here's a picture. This is from last year, but this just gives you a sense of these people coming together and hearing uh, speakers and worshiping and being mentored and praying 24-7. It's an amazing sight that, again, moves you with compassion for the people of Europe. And it's one of the reasons that we continue to go back. And yet here's what I was thinking about in preparation for tonight. I thought, and you've had this experience too, I thought, you know, it's one thing to go to Europe for 10 days and tour Auschwitz and tour Birkenau and be with a bunch of different Christian leaders from many different nations that don't have the resources I do and be moved with compassion. I mean, you have to have a really hard heart to not have that experience. But the challenge becomes, what do we do with our own city, right? In other words, it's one thing to go somewhere else where the need is obvious and be moved with compassion, but the real challenge to me and to you is what do you and I do with Scottsdale and Phoenix? In other words, when we go to the inner city of Phoenix, are we moved with the same compassion? When we drive by Indian reservations, are we moved with the same compassion? When we see immigrants, legal and illegal, are we moved with the same compassion? And maybe even more to home, what about our own neighborhoods? No matter where you might live, your upper middle class Scottsdale neighborhood, are you moved with compassion? Or are you duped into thinking that this is simply the good life? I would encourage you not to do that. The motive of a contagious Christian, as we're going to see in a second here, is to see beyond all the facades and find deep within you where the Holy Spirit lives a motive of compassion. Without it, will never become contagious. And yet with it, I'm telling you, there's no stopping how God will use us. Now, once we understand this, the obvious question that you might be thinking of is how do we get this motive of compassion, right? I mean, if we're being honest, you might say, well, Jamie, I don't always feel compassionate, especially towards Scottsdale people. I don't always feel compassionate, especially toward maybe Phoenix people. So how is it that we get a motive of compassion in our lives? And Jesus and Matthew 9 go on to tell us. And it has everything to do with the mindset of a contagious Christian, how you and I can choose to see those around us. And so here it is. It's what I call the mindset of a contagious Christian, and it involves simply looking beneath. Looking beneath. I want you to hang on to those two words. 
as you do. Look at verse 36 of Matthew 9, and this time focus on the latter half of this verse, and notice what it says after it says that Jesus had compassion. Look at Matthew 9, 36b. It says, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at all the people. I mean, again, this is that bridge passage bridging the two halves of Matthew. And Jesus is going through all the cities and villages. And he looked at all the people. And he says he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what is it that gave Jesus his heart for lost people, this compassion? It was contained in how he saw them, the mindset, don't miss this, that he had about them. And don't miss as well what the essence of this mindset was all about. And that is that simply Jesus looked beneath all the surfacey stuff of people's lives, the veneer that they covered everything with, and he saw others, did you catch it, as harassed, and then as helpless. That word harassed, sometimes translated distressed or weary, literally means to be bullied or oppressed. Hang on to that. The word helpless there literally means to put or lay down. The connotation that you've been attacked, thrown to the ground, and you're now helpless. So you put these two words together, and you get the picture of a bullied and beaten up group of people. Don't miss that. That's how Jesus saw humanity, all of them, as bullied and beaten up. And we got to ask ourselves, why? And by whom? And by what? I mean, Jesus didn't know all of these people personally. He had not spent personal time with each one of them, hearing their stories of, say, shattered dreams or lost childhood or disappointments or failed relationships or spiritual confusion. And even if he had, many of them, as we all know, put on really good airs. They look dignified and competent as they scurry about doing business or enjoying themselves in bars and shops. And so what is it that Jesus knew about their lives? What is it that he saw beneath the veneer that would cause him to see them as harassed and helpless? And it's simple. He knew the three enemies, universal enemies, of every human life. Look up here on the screen. They are the world, the flesh, and the evil one. You see, this was Jesus' theology, and nobody fooled him. He knew that every human being on planet Earth had been dealing for all of their lives with a nasty world around them, with their own flesh that's fallen and sinful, as well as the attacks of the evil one, dark spiritual forces in their lives. Listen, every single human and societal problem comes down to one or a combination of these three fundamental problem sources. Spiritual dark forces that wage war in and around us when we don't even know it. Our own fallen and sinful nature that causes us to do, at the very least, unwise, at the very most, really stupid things. And then other people and this fallen world that can hurt us and wound us. And when Jesus realized this, and he did realize this because he was the Son of God, it caused him to see everybody nobody's immune to this as being harassed and helpless. He wasn't fooled for a minute because he knew the three enemies of all human beings. 
And so notice with me that from this then, in Jesus' mindset, a metaphor flowed freely as he saw these people. It says that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Or to put it in today's world, dogs without owners. Or maybe children without parents. You get the idea. What Walker Percy says, lost in the cosmos. That's how he saw every human being on planet Earth. He saw them as being bullied by these three enemies and many times losing the battle, bruised and beaten, very similar to sheep who have no shepherd and are exposed to ravenous wolves. This is how Jesus saw them. And the only way he could do this was through looking beneath. He didn't let the facades or the plastic smiles fool him. He didn't let people's defensive anger keep him at bay. He knew the human heart, and he knew the pain of this world, and therefore he knew that everybody is carrying some sort of wound. And as he realized this, don't miss this, this created compassion in him. Kind of like having spiritual x-ray glasses. He saw into the heart and soul of humanity around him, realizing that everybody's been beaten up in some way, and this view gave him a compassionate, non-defensive posture toward those around him. And so this isn't complicated, folks. The obvious application here is that you and I need to open our eyes, break down the barriers of our own hearts, look beneath to those around us, because it's the same today and it's all around us. You scratch the surface just a little bit of anybody in your sphere of influence, and no matter how confident they might seem, no matter how together they might try to pretend, they really aren't. They're hurting just as much as you are. They're seeking God in the deepest recesses of their heart because they're made in his image, and that requires compassion from us. But we gotta see beneath the surface. So we got to the airport at 4 o'clock on, uh, on Wednesday, Thursday morning to hey, head back here to the States, and it was going to be a 22-hour trip from Krakow back here to Phoenix. Three different flights, a bunch of layovers, and it was going to be a long day. And as we got to the airport there at 4 o'clock, when I got there, I saw a friend from the forum, but I was kind of dazed from being tired, so I said hi to him, and he said to me, he said, well, do you know so-and-so, let's call him Stefan from Sweden, he said, Stefan was in one of your classes teaching people how to teach the Bible. So I shook Stefan's hand and I said hello, and then I kind of got in line to get my ticket. Uh, when we were going through the security line, the guys that I was traveling with from this church uh, allowed their own hunger to keep them from going through security. So I went through security, they're back eating, and I find myself on the other end of security there with about an hour wait for the plane. And that's when I noticed Stefan from Sweden. He was in line there at one of those little bagel shops to get a bagel. So I went up to him and I just started a conversation with him. And I bought him a bagel and a cup of coffee, and I said, do you mind if we sit down together? And he said, no, that would be fine. And we started just some small talk about the forum that we just participated in, what we had learned, what we had seen. And then I decided to ask him the question that's really the most all-important question in life, and that, that is, uh, what do you do? And he said, I'm a pastor. And I said, well, were you raised in a Christian home? I mean, how did that come to be? What's your story? See, folks, everybody loves to tell their story. You ever notice that? 
Everybody loves to tell their story. You ask that one single question of anybody in your life, what's your story, and just get ready to listen for about 30 to 45 minutes, maybe even longer, because everybody wants to tell their story. And when I asked Stefan his story, for about 30 minutes he talked nonstop, and it was an amazing story. He told me the story of how he'd grown up, grown up in a Christian home, a Lutheran home back there in Sweden, and his parents were doctors, missionaries to Africa. And this was back in the days when maybe life was even more crazy or driven than it is now. And so his parents were always serving, and he says that those parents were good Christian people. They never really had time for the kids. They were always doing something on the mission field. And by the time Stefan was about 10 or 11, he had pretty much decided that God wasn't all that real because all he did was see his parents serving and they never really poured into him. And that started about a decade of pretty strong rebellion in this young Christian guy. It's hard to rebel on the mission field in a Christian home, but he found some creative ways to do it. In fact, he would say that every time they would pray for the meal, one of the things he would do is start eating way before the prayer was done. That was his rebellion. He said they couldn't have small group at their home because every time the parents would try to have a small group in the home, he would interrupt them nonstop so that they couldn't have a small group discussion. Some kids do drugs, some kids do what this kid did. I guess you have to do that in Africa. But it became a very serious rebellion. He wanted nothing to do with God. In fact, he determined by the age of 15 or 16 that he was pretty much going to be an atheist. And then at the age of 18, when they had already moved back to Sweden, his mom committed suicide. He, he didn't see it coming at all. His mom had struggled with bipolar depression for most of the life, but the father had hidden it from all four kids. And so he had no clue that his mom silently struggled with depression all of her life. And so when his mom killed herself, he was totally taken off guard. He says he can remember his dad screaming out to God, why? And all the church people would come by and give meals and take care of them, but nobody addressed the elephant in the room, and that is, why did my mom kill herself? And that cemented even more his hatred of God. He went off to the university and studied biology because he figured that if religion didn't hold any answers, then science would. But he quickly realized after about a year that science didn't quite deliver as it said it would. In fact, he realized that science didn't offer much more answers to the meaning of life than philosophy or even religion. And so ironically, he changed his major to theology. And that's when it started, and I love how he said, told the story. He said he had four revolutions in his life over the next decade of his life. The first revolution was a revolution of truth. He realized that truth was held in the Bible. As he started to read the Bible on its own, without any Christians speaking into it, with any missionaries, just he and the Bible, he realized it made sense and that God was real and that God was speaking to him. The second revolution was the revolution of his conversion. He eventually came to the point where, as C.S. Lewis would say, he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God because he realized how good and true the gospel really is. Then his third revolution was a revolution of ministry, his calling to be a pastor. And right now he's in the midst of his fourth revolution, what he calls the revolution of joy, where he's trying to dig deep and find joy in the midst of what one could argue was a pretty shattered life. Let me ask you a question. As I sat there and listened to Stefan's story in the airport 48, hour ago, 48 hours ago, do you think I was surprised by all the brokenness he'd been through? Not at all. Because, you see, I realized 30 years ago when I became a Christian 
that everybody is harassed and helpless. Everybody has a broken story to tell. It's just that Stefan's has a good ending. Because you see, or I guess a good middle right now, because you see, he's come to Christ, and he's found that revolution of truth and conversion, ministry, and now even joy. And did I mention he's only 31 years old? And he's a wonderful pastor in Sweden. Maybe we'll bring him here someday. And this is obviously just one story. Every month, I hear stories of depression, marital and family breakdown, death and grieving, sickness, heartache over one's own sin, uh, other lives being messed up, economic and financial troubles, spiritual confusion, every month. And some of this, even in my own heart, surely we can all agree, we live in a fallen world and we're harassed and helpless without God. And please see, this is what Jesus saw. And when you see humanity this way, when you ask the question of those around you, what's your story? I'm telling you, it takes the anger away. It takes the judgment away. It takes all the nasty things that invade our soul and keep us at bay from people away. The contagious Christian has a mindset, and it's just like Jesus's. It looks beneath the veneer of culture, and it produces a compassionate heart for those around you. So we have a motive that will make us contagious, a compassionate motive. It's built upon a mindset that will give us this motive, the mindset of looking beneath. And then let's finally notice that we have a method as a contagious Christian. And this is going to surprise some of you, but I'm going to do my best in five minutes to convince you of this. And that is that the method that Jesus has given us is to be intentionally relational with those around us. Bear with me. To be intentionally relational. And you're saying, where do you see this? Look again at verses 37 and 38. This passage wraps up by saying, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, let's wrestle with this for a moment. I have heard more sermons on Matthew 9 than I can shake a fist at, and so have you. This is not a new passage to you veteran Christians. And at this point, when I hear people talk about this passage, especially preachers like myself, you know what they always say? They say, we got to get to work. We got to get out there into the harvest field, and we got to work hard, and we better win souls and save souls. And the main message that they tell you, the main message they tell you from this passage is that we better roll up our sleeves and work. And though that is technically true, what I think we have failed to miss is that work here is an analogy or a metaphor for something else. Do we all understand that? In other words, this whole passage here that Jesus is giving us here is a metaphor. It's an agricultural word picture in which Jesus is likening this world and his kingdom to a vineyard or some other field in which there is the potential for planting, watering, growing, producing, and eventually reaping fruit. And he says that his followers in this metaphor are the workers or the laborers who've been sent into the field to work it. And so the obvious question is, what is the work or labor that we must do, right? That's the question. we got to figure out what is the work or labor that Jesus is talking about. And to answer it, as I hear so many Christians do, by saying, well, you just better get to work, doesn't answer the question. Now, my question is, what is the work that Jesus is getting at here? 
And I believe the answer is contained in the life of Jesus. And when you look closely at the life of Jesus, it explodes into a reality that can forever change the way that you and I work in the kingdom. Because the clear methodology of Jesus here to reach and influence those around him was simply to draw close relationally to everyone in his sphere of influence and even intentionally and through rich relationality, Jesus asked questions. He listened, he served, he healed, he shared truth. In other words, he loved people into a relationship with Almighty God. If you don't believe me, think about all the the scenarios that you know about from reading the Gospels. Think about the, the, the calling of the 12 disciples. I would submit to you that every one of them were intentionally relational. Every single one of them. Peter and Andrew, while fishing, Jesus says, come follow me. And then it says that Jesus took them to his home to interact with them for a day. You can read about it in Matthew 4 and John chapter 1. It was relational. Remember Matthew's calling at the tax collector's booth. Jesus said, come, follow me, and Matthew did. And then they went and had a party with all the other sinners at Matthew's house. Intentionally relational. And then you got Philip and Nathaniel. Philip finds Jesus. He goes to Nathaniel, and he says, hey, I found Jesus. Jesus meets Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you sitting under the tree. It's intentionally relational. James and John, while they were fishing, intentionally relational. Most all of Jesus' miracles and healings, when you look close, were intentionally relational, whether it be the centurion that he interacted with, the man with a demon-possessed boy, a man born blind, a paralytic, Jairus' daughter. Jesus drew close and interacted with people, and in so doing, and through doing that, he then healed them. Think about any story that you know. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Zacchaeus up a tree, Peter when he denied Jesus and then was restored. Even Jesus' interactions with people like Pilate during his trial, they all carry one central theme. And that's the theme of Jesus showing us what rich relationality looks like as we draw close to people and in the rubric of relationship, we share truth with them, the truth of the gospel. I'm telling you, folks, Jesus did very few sermons on the mount. He did very few feeding of the 5,000s, at least that are recorded. Most all of his ministry is intentionally relational, simply drawing close to those around him. And as one of my seminary professors said years ago, Jesus had a hug em, slug em approach to relationship. He would hug them relationally and listen and interact, and then he'd slug them with the truth, the truth of the gospel. That was Jesus' methodology. And I would simply submit to you that this is the methodology of a contagious Christian. So what do you and I do? What do we do as we worship here on Saturday night thinking of life before us? I would encourage you just to open your eyes to those around you. All of you have people in your sphere of influence, friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, service providers, fellow students. You have people around you, I promise you, that don't know the Lord. And even though they, they kind of go like this to you and, and give you mixed messages, draw close, but then they keep you at arm's bay, they're seeking God. The Bible says that he's closer to us than we would ever know and that we're made in his image and that all humanity in some way it has a God-shaped vacuum inside of them that can only be filled by God himself. And he wants to use you. He wants you to use you to, to get more people here in church, 
that to share a verbal witness with those around you, to let others know about the love of Jesus Christ. And though as a church we share all sorts of methodologies, we'll give you evangelism classes and events you can invite friends to. We have a counseling center, a men's ministry, a women's ministry, all types of things that you can use. They all carry one theme, and that is that we hope you're befriending somebody around you and through loving them in the name of Jesus Christ, loving them relationally, God will use you to draw them to himself. And that's my vision for Saturday night, that as you reach out to those around you, at some point you'll say, why don't you come to church with me? You know, my pastor is a lot of things, but he's not boring. He won't put you to sleep. And you know what, Troy sometimes might play music too loud, but, but it's pretty good music. And you know, the people there, they're not perfect, but, but they're going to love you. We have an authentic, real community. You see, I have a vision for Scottsdale Bible Church that, that we would do that more and more. And then obviously we pray for each other in the process. Jesus ends his passage in, or his words in verse 38 by saying, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What's he saying there? He's, if we've understood laborers right, he's saying pray for each other as we go into the harvest field, as we go into the field, and as we work it through relating, pray that God would be in all of that. Billy Graham once said something rather profound. Look up here on the screen. I think we can uh, kind of go forward to the last slide. They're perfect. Billy Graham once said this. He said, every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear, bear full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation and God will hold us responsible to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. If you don't hear anything else tonight, I'm here to tell you, you have opportunities before you. The, the fields are ripe with harvest. That's what Jesus taught us. And if we would have the courage, the love, the compassion to draw close to those around us, think of one or two names tonight and, and just reach out to them. And then share the faith that you have in Christ with them. Invite them to seek in our faith community here. I'm telling you, there'll be no stopping how God might use us. We're going to go to the communion table right now. As we do so, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you that uh, the life of Jesus is set before us in such a way that we not only receive his teaching as to what he would tell us to do, but then we also see his modeling contained in all the interactions he had with people around him. And Lord, it sounds so simple, but we know that so many of us tend to make a mess of this, this idea of simply drawing close relationally to those around us and having the courage to ask questions, to hear stories, to listen, to pray, and then, Lord, in a timely way to share the truth of the gospel that we have in Christ. And so, Lord, as we each give thought to our own circles of influence, own spheres of influence tonight, Lord, would you put one or two people uh, on our mind that you might have for us to reach out to in the coming days and weeks and months, and Lord, maybe even make a part of this Saturday night service where they can seek you. And Lord, as you've said, to those who seek, they will find. And so, Lord, we commit them to your care that they might find you even through this community. God, thank you for all the blessings that you've given us Thank you for this time of communion that we're going to enter into right now that represents your body, your blood, so we continue our worship of you now. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen.